0: of those two videos to our lives, the idea that the Bible is God's Word, and we need to know it, but more than just know it, as the video said, we need to obey it. We need to make disciples. We need to do what the Word of God tells us to do, and so this morning, we are going to walk very deliberately and systematically through 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, 11 to 15, where we are trying to discover God's design for his daughters in the church is the subject matter. We're trying to look at God's word and say, okay, God has a plan for both the men, the sons in his church, and the the women, the ladies, the daughters in his church. And ultimately, what we've been looking at is how does the church live life? How do God's people live life? How are we supposed to function as a church? So let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. I'm going to read it again. What it says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Once again, that passage that just gives everybody the warm, tingly feelings, I know, all right? Now, last week, we started to lay a foundation for this. And before we can understand the differences between men and women or what God has called men to be and women to be, we shared the idea of what we are together what are men and women together? What is humanity? And we discovered that we are all created in God's image. We are all created in God's image. We also learned that in Scripture we are all guilty of sin. It's not just one of us. It's not just that the ladies are sinful or that the men only are sinful. All of us are sinful. We learned that we are all called to respond to the gospel. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what culture you're from, what what race, what age you are. It doesn't matter anything. We are all called to respond to the gospel. If we have responded to the gospel as men and women, all God's people, male and female, are joint heirs with Christ. We all are joint heirs with Christ. When we are saved... We are sons and daughters of God. How I wish I could get everybody to begin every day of their life as a Christian reminding themselves, I belong to God. I'm, God. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. And because of that, we will all reign with Christ. We will all reign with Christ. That's the promise of revelation, that we will all reign with him forever and ever. We are not going to be in heaven and have the women congregated in one place and the men congregated in another and all worship separately. We will all rule and reign together with him. But we are also all called to make disciples. And as we just saw in that video, that is not about memorizing Matthew 18, 8, or 28, 18 to 20. That's about us doing it. And, I, th- you know, don't, don't let that video go on, on, on deaf ears. Are you making disciples as a Christian? Are you so overwhelmed by what Christ has done for you that it's not that you want to go shove religion on somebody, but you want to actually share with them what Christ has done for you? It's not about a program or five steps to this or six steps to that. Share five verses. Ask him a rhetorical question. It's about being overwhelmed with Jesus. And so we're all called to make disciples. We learn that we're all baptized in the Spirit. We are all baptized in the Spirit. We are all, male and female, part of the body of Christ. We are all called to exhort and encourage and admonish and teach each other. That's Colossians chapter 3. And finally, we are all saved into Christ as one church. God's church is not made up of a group of ladies and a group of men. We are all together, the church of God. And when I say one church there, I mean the universal church, the church that is gathering in Colombia, the church that's gathering in Argentina, the church that's gathering in Houston, the church that's gathering in other parts of this country, in this city. All we are together, men and women, are all a part of the church. But now I want to start breaking it down and get into the nitty-gritty of this passage. And if you'll take just verses 11 and 12, you'll see it broken down into different different little uh, phrases. First of all, in 11a, you've got, woman should learn in quietness. All right, hang on to that one, okay? Le- le- 11b, in all submissiveness. 12a, I do not permit a woman to teach. Then in 12b, or to exercise authority over a man. And then it ends with, but she is to be quiet. Now, if you look at just 11 and 12, you'll notice 11 starts with a woman should learn in quietness, and it ends with, but she should be in quietness. In theology, we call that inclusio. What that means is this is one thought. All right? Paul is making a thought. It began with quietness and ends in quietness. And so, as we looked at last week, we started out with. And I know I'm being somewhat disjointed here, but we're looking at what does God's word actually say? That was my first point. So today I want to start with God's daughters are called to learn quietly. Okay. God's daughters called to learn quietly. Now you will see what I mean about our hearts and our minds and even how predisposed to our culture is because let's be honest. And I already know because when I read this and looked up, many of you made eye contact with me and you did one of this. Bring it. Bring it, big fella. Let me hear you explain this one. All right? It's almost like you're either daring me or you're trying to intimidate me. One or the other. All right? But you see, how many of you think when you read First Timothy 2, 11 to 15, you think, you know what? Paul is actually blowing away the culture here in a positive way. Crickets versus how many of you might have been tempted to think or did think, where does this dude get off? Telling a guy to go to church and telling the women to shut it. That might be a little closer to maybe what some of us were thinking, all right, if we were honest. But see, that really grasp this. You need to understand what that word means quietly means, before you can see the beauty of the word, learn. Now, some of you, if you got a King James or a New King James, I think some of the NIV translations, you might have the word, the word let a woman learn in silence. All right, silence. And that can't mean complete silence. Or that women cannot open their mouth at all. Because remember, we're learning about the principle of harmony and the principle of history. Paul has already said, That women are to be involved in the praying of church, in praying in the church. We know from other passages like 1 Corinthians 11, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter uh, 5, that we've looked at where women are welcome and active participants in corporate family worship. And so, with all that in mind, we need to celebrate what is really a culture exploding reality. Because Paul says in verse 11, let a woman. Learn. Let a woman learn. And you need to realize how that in and of itself tells you that Paul wasn't rolling with his culture. Because let me tell you, men and women, what was the first century like? If you were a first century Roman woman, you were considered actually intellectually second class. That was the Roman culture of the first century. And Judaism was even worse. In Judaism, according to the Jerusalem Talmud, here is what was written in it. It would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. That sounds like a nice place to live, doesn't it? In a nice era to live. The Babylonian Talmud, it goes even further, and it talks about how men and women worshipped in the synagogue, and it said this, The men come to the synagogue to learn, the women came to hear. And so Paul, a Jew, writing to a group of predominantly Gentile Roman people or free citizens, says, let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. So you see, the Bible, God, Jesus, true Christianity, doesn't put women down, but rather builds them up before God as those who are made in God's image. And so here Paul is actually pushing back against the culture as God's word does. In fact, it's not only countercultural, but I love the idea that the Word of God is transcultural. In fact, the Bible is read properly and opened rightly, issues of justice and equality, freedom, and love are always high and lifted up. In fact, Steve Don and I were talking about this just this morning. A document, ironically enough, called The Women of Renewal. This is what they state in their document, it was signed in 1997. Because the Bible is the most effective force in history for lifting women to higher levels of respect and dignity and freedom. We join an historic succession of whose Christian faith is forged from biblical truth and whose lives are shaped into Christ's image, and I love this, on the anvil of obedience. What a wonderful statement. Now, it concludes this way. The church has some reasons to be ashamed of the way it has treated women. And I think we can all agree on that. Growing up, I have been shocked and shamed by the way I've seen the church treat women. And we should be ashamed of that. But notice it says at the end of the statement, it says, but no reason to be ashamed of what God says about women in his word. You see, because the church doesn't get it right, doesn't mean we shouldn't get into the Word of God. And that's why I showed you that video from Francis Chan talking about, it's not a what about you think, what about I think, and all these things. It's about what God's Word says. And so with that in mind, let's return to the word quietly and see what Paul does mean. The Greek word for quietly means this. It refers to a gentle demeanor. It's the same word used back earlier in chapter 2 when pa- Paul said, I want you to pray for all men, and I want you to pray that you could lead a peaceful and quiet life. The quiet life back in 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. It's the same word. It means gentle deme- demeanor. And if you want to see an example of this, look no further than Acts chapter 2. Or sorry, Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21, Peter is arrested in Jerusalem. He's almost beaten to death, but then the Romans come out and they arrest him. And, and and he asks if he can address the mob that's come. And in verse chapter 21, Paul says this. Paul, standing on the steps, with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, you want to circle that word hush, that's the word that means silence. That's the Greek word that means silence. He addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Quiet is the same word used in First Timothy 2. It means they became respectful. They took on a gentle demeanor. At first they were just silent, but they didn't like the guy talking to them. But when Paul addressed them in the Hebrew language, he showed them respect, and he showed that he was Jewish, and he understood it. Then they got even more quiet. They became more respectful. Now they were like, okay, we will listen to him. This is what Paul is saying to the daughters of God. You need to come to church and be ready to hear from God, have a quietness about you. There was a great hush. Paul is telling women to give their ministers, their elders, the same undivided attention that he himself received when he spoke in Jerusalem. Which, by the way, is what men are called to do as well. It's not only for the ladies to learn quietly. This is part of order and respect. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when you get to the end of the chapter, Paul says, let everything be done decently and in order. And so, women of God, daughters of God, you are called by God to learn. And in the church, to learn the best is to listen while being taught or hearing preaching. Now, let's be honest. Doesn't that kind of make sense? That if someone's teaching you, you listen? Or if someone's preaching, you listen? Listen? I remember almost every year, there are some things that God has just kept with me in my life. And I remember all 12 different teachers that I had going through school. I remember their nicknames. I remember what we called them behind their back and what we said to them in front of them. All right? But I do know this. They all had one thing in common. When I'm talking, you listen. Because that's the best way to learn. That's the best way to learn. You're not supposed to. Chaos. You're not supposed to have all kinds. So let's go a little bit deeper because now our passage says God's daughters are called to submit. All right? Notice what our passage says. He says in verse 11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, you might find this fascinating, all right, as I tread in these waters. The Bible, your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is full of the concept of submission, it's everywhere. But if I just take the book of Acts to the book of Revelation, the word submit is used 12 times. The word for submission is used 8 times. So 20 times from Acts to Revelation, submissions talked about, and we are all called to submit in all kinds of ways. We're told to submit to God. Nobody would argue with that. We're all called to submit to God. We are called to submit to the law of God, which is God's word. We're told to submit to government. We're told to submit to each other. Well, here's one that I always find fascinating why we have trouble with this passage, but not this one. In Ephesians chapter 6 and in Colossians chapter 4, children are called to submit to their parents. Children are called to submit to their parents. And it's funny to me because no one disputes that in church. Regardless of your position on whether females or males should be pastors or elders in a church everyone believes that children are to submit to their parents and yet no one thinks that that makes children of less value no one thinks that no one thinks because we won't let children lead us thinks that we're saying kids you're not good you're not as good as us no one believes that we have three children at home they all are at different ages. They all do different things in our home. But Debbie and I never lay in bed and I go, well, you know what? I'm really glad I got him. You know, I'm not so, you know, that one child. Well, you know, he's not quite as special as the others. You know, who would think that way? Not good parents. Right? We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to love each other. All right? So when you think about submission, I want you to think of employees are told to submit to their bosses. Church members are told to submit to their elders. And yes, in full disclosure, ladies, in Titus, 1 Timothy, Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Peter, those that are married, wives are told to submit to their husbands. But we're also told some things not to submit to. In the New Testament, we're told not to submit to the slavery of legalism in Colossians chapter 2. And Paul tells us not to submit to anyone who teaches any other gospel in Galatians. And so the word submission there in our our passage, 1 Timothy 2, what does this word submission mean? Well, okay, in the Greek it means this. To submit is to be obedient or to yield to authority. To yield to authority. Here in this application, it means to respect the leadership and authority that God has given to the elders of the church. It means to receive their teaching in a spirit of cheerful agreement. Leland Ryken, a Presbyterian minister today who I love very much and love to read his material, he puts these two words together, learn and submission. And he says when these two words are put together with the word quietly, they don't describe an unusual style of learning that's unique to women. Rather, they describe the only way that a person can learn at all. Any teacher knows it's impossible to teach someone who is talking all the time. And good teachers maintain order in their classrooms because good learning requires good listening. Learning also requires a teachable spirit. You see, it's impossible to teach someone who thinks he or she knows all the answers already. Have you encountered those people? If you haven't, for those of you that are young kids, wait till your child is between the ages of 13 and 19 because they really think they have discovered the answers to all of life. I forget who it was that said, if you can raise a child to 13 get him a 13, and put him in a barrel with a hole in it. And then when he turns 18, plug the hole. All right? I, don't, I can't remember right now who said it, but that's what some others have said. All right? But you know how frustrating it is to try and deal with someone who thinks they know all the answers. You see, it's impossible to teach someone like that. See, to learn is to submit to the knowledge and authority of a teacher. That's what submission means. Every good student is quiet And receptive. And if you want an example of this for my sisters and for my brothers here, look no further than Mary, the sister of Martha. They were the girls, right? There was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And if you remember in Luke 10, Jesus comes to their house and Jesus is teaching, and Martha's in the kitchen and she's whipping up a scoff. All right? But Mary is there and she gets agitated by her sister's actions and she complains. To Jesus, because Luke 10 tells us that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning. Now, church, listen. If Jesus was a male chauvinist, here was his chance to show us, because Jesus doesn't say to Mary, get in the kitchen where you belong. In Luke 10, here's his words. And she went up to him and said, Lord, this is Martha. Do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. I guess this was the precursor to the Brady Bunch. You guys will catch up with that and laugh at that a little later on. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Now, notice this. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus does not take her away from learning from him. He does not tell her, get in the kitchen. You see, Jesus and Paul make it plain that men and women are to be a people of the Bible. We are to learn, and we, but in learning, we are to be respectful of those who are teaching, not argumentative, not interrupting, not sitting as judge, but as student. But for every sister, every daughter of God here today, make no mistake about it. God wants women to be knowledgeable in the scriptures and sound in their theology. All right. Following God's order and plan is not meaning that ladies are not to know their Bible. And this is a call for women of the church to know their Bibles. And submission is not some things. Now, let me get this on the record. Submission is not a woman doing everything a man tells her. That is not biblical submission. Submission does not mean staying in an abusive relationship. That is not biblical submission. If you've got a guy who's lording over you with his words or his bodily presence or, heaven forbid, hitting you, here's my advice and counsel. Get out. Report him. Bring him to people that can lay a beating on him. I say that in love. I remember a member of my family, there was some adultery in our family. And I I remember meeting with the father of the daughter whose daughter had been cheated on. And I I asked him while I was in the van with him, I said, how are you holding up through all of this? And he said, Stephen, he said, I wish this was back a few years ago. Because he said, if a man swandered on his wife a few years ago and that guy's father could get a couple of his buddies and go beat the snot out of him for a while and drag him home before his wife and tell him to be a loyal good man <laughs> he said we can't really do that today but uh, anyway he was an old-fashioned Newfoundland man and I love him but ladies uh, submission does not mean staying in an abusive relationship submission biblical submission by the way is not Victorianism or a North American traditionalism it doesn't mean a woman is to be a Betty Crocker wife or a Stepford wife. It doesn't mean a woman isn't good with money or a capable leader at home or in the workplace or even at church. Biblical submission doesn't mean a woman is weak, more gullible, or lacks self-discipline. In fact, if we were all honest, we've all likely known women who are strong, wonderfully intelligent, and amazingly creative. I know I'm married to one. But this passage, though, nor God's plan was ever about a competition or qualifications or intelligence. Value or who is king and queen of the proverbial mountain is not in debate or up for discussion in First Timothy 2. It's always and only about God's design and plan for the display of himself to a watching world so that he gets the glory. And the ultimate example of submission, church, is the Godhead. Look no further than God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And maybe if you have time a little later on, read Philippians chapter 2. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Read Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and countless expressions of Jesus in the gospel. And you will see a perfect display of equality, of value, and yet distinct roles like nothing you've ever known. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus, even though he was equal with God, didn't think it was anything to be fought over to lay himself and become lower than God the Father, but gave up his godness and became his own creation. And he walked as a man, and then it said he became obedient unto the death, even death on a cross. In John chapter 16, Jesus talks about the role of the Holy Spirit, and that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will always and only speak of jesus and that by the way for all of my charismatic friends is my one challenge if you want to know if something is truly supernatural or from the lord if you want to know if the holy spirit is truly working here's your litmus test the holy spirit always points to christ and christ always points to the father That's the way it works. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that the Father has given all things to the Son and that when the Son has conquered all things, that death is the last thing. And when He does, He's going to come and lay all things at the feet of the Father. And He does all that through His Spirit. So you see roles and distinctions and yet perfect harmony and unity even in the Trinity. So listen, try to imagine God without the Father. Try to imagine God without the Son. Try to imagine God without the Holy Spirit. You don't have God. We don't have a gospel. So, try to imagine a marriage without a husband and a wife. Try to imagine a church without godly men and women. Brothers and sisters, And yet, we've been called to have certain functions, certain roles, callings of God that display himself. And, okay, you might say with a bit of a grin, all right, that was the easy part. Now, keep going. Okay, number three, God's daughters are called to trust God. And listen to this, some men. Some men. (laughs) All right? God's daughters are called to trust God and some men. Notice what he says. I do not permit a woman... To teach her to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And again, remember, that means have a dignity, a gentle demeanor about her. And we've looked at this. Women are to learn about God, and they are to do so respectfully and submissively. But now Paul gives instructions and order to church leadership. That is the immediate context of our passage. He begins to highlight the difference in the role for the ladies and for most of the men. You see, first, notice what this verse does not say. It does not say that women are not to teach or exercise authority. We've already seen that women are to learn, and that they must, and that must mean teaching. Our Bible is filled with women who taught. Solomon talks about this over and over again, at least five times in the Book of Proverbs. He tells his children, "Do not ignore or do not uh, turn away from the teaching of your mother." the instruction of your mother. In 2 Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy of how he was trained up in the gospel by his mother and his grandmother. Over and over again, we see this. We see many women, Martha, Mary, others, Mary of Magdala, that helped the disciples, helped Jesus. Lydia, Chloe, all these different women hosted churches in their homes, provided financial support. Aquila and Priscilla, a married couple, together taught Apollos, Philip, had four daughters who prophesied in Acts chapter 21. And we've already seen in Colossians 3, all of us are called to exhort and teach one another. But in the context here, let the shoe drop and the elephant in the room now be recognized. Paul is specifically saying that women are not called of God to the office of elder, to the office of pastor. This is the area where she is not to take on authority. And it doesn't mean that she's supposed to shut her mouth. It means she's respectful and supportive. Paul is not telling his sisters and in Christ to excel in the role that God has called you to. You are not called, my sisters and daughters of God, to display the glory of God in a position. Now, listen to this of biblical accountability. I didn't say biblical authority. The office of the elder is not about privilege or power. It's all about responsibility. This is not an office of prestige. This is an office of a calling of servant leadership. And men don't get to choose that they're going to be it. In fact, in the next coming weeks, the next title of my next sermon starting in chapter 3 is when we look at this, God's call and the church agree and the church's agreement. That's what we're called to. This is a trust God thing. And you'll notice a couple of other things. Married women... Are not to submit to all men. That is not a calling. But to their husband and to the elders. Unmarried women, you are not supposed to, who are still living at home. You're not to submit to all men. You're to submit to your fathers and to your elders. Unmarried women or widows should submit to God and to their elders. And we all need to see that this calling, this not permitting, has nothing to do with competency or intelligence. This is not about God saying, well, I like men more than women. This is not about men who can do the job better. God nor Paul is saying, I like men more or I can trust them better. And the proof is what is found next in verses 13, 14, and 15. See, Paul is reminding Timothy to remind his sisters in the faith at Ephesus that God has called them to support the elders in the church and not to try to be them or to control them. So, at the end of the day, God says that the office of elder is for certain men only, not just any guy who wants it. It's not just for the A-type, power-hungry, dominating men. No, in fact, they are supposed to be God-called, dying-to-self, servant leaders who will love God and his church in such a way that with joy and delight, men and women both will submit and follow God and their elders' example of faith. And to drive the, home, put the point even further, Paul explains it in 13, 14, and 15. So number four, God's daughters are called to understand God's design and God's plan. And this is where that principle of harmony and history comes to play. See, God walks us through his design in the plan of creation all the way to today. And if we look at history, let me just tell you in regards to this fight, this, this tension amongst the genders within the church about male pastors or female pastors or who should do what, you need to realize that according to history, this wasn't a debate in North America except in the last hundred years. And I'm even being generous when I say the last hundred years. This has not been the debate. History has always been on what Paul describes in 1 Timothy 2. Biblical harmony is there. But if you keep in mind what was said in verses 1 to 12 of 1 Timothy, you have a much easier time with these last three verses. You see, Paul's not belittling belittling women. He's actually building them up. And he's showing us all why God's plan for his church is consistent. And so he goes all the way back to creation. Notice what he says. He says, verse 13, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. All right, so let me make a class out of you. Is he lying? Is he lying? No. Adam was formed first, and then Eve. He's just stating the facts. Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, this one you might hesitate on, but is he, is he saying anything that's not true? He's really not. He, but I want you to understand what he's trying to do here. All right, he is trying to th- th- these things up. He's saying that Eve was deceived and became a transgressor, not as if Adam didn't. No, Paul is simply pointing out what happened. But when you follow it through, you will notice that Eve was deceived and Adam was, de- was, was sinful. If you go back to Genesis 3, and I'm not going to get you there yet because I'm going to take you there in a second. When you go there, Eve was deceived. When God comes to her and says, why did you guys hide? And he goes to Eve and says, what have you done? Her response is, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I mean, those are her own words. And then when he goes to Adam and says, what have you done? What does he say? This woman you gave me. Right? On a chapter earlier, he was like, man, Eve, she's the woman. Like, I mean, he's just gushing about how. And then the moment it goes south, the first time a woman ever knew what it was to be thrown under the bus by a man was Adam. And yet, the first time that Adam ever knew what it was for the love of his life, the completed partner of his life, to go out ahead of him in responsibility was when Eve allowed see, yeah, Satan to deceive her, and she went ahead of her husband. And that's what Paul is appealing to. And, I'm not, and remember what I said to you, that the office of elder is not one of authority, but of accountability. Because if you go to Romans chapter 5, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12... When Paul says, for why one man sin entered the world. Paul doesn't blame Eve. When God comes in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve are hiding themselves, they realize they're naked, they're ashamed, they show fig leaves and put them on themselves and they're hiding. When, when God comes in the cool of the day, he doesn't say, Eve, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? He calls Adam to give an account. He holds Adam responsible. And this is what happens in both creation and in marriage and in redemption in the church. And so that's why we know he will hold man accountable. Listen, not of more value, but to lead and represent both man and woman before God. And that's what Paul means in first Corinthians 11. And it's what he means here. So once again, Paul is not belittling women. He's explaining why God designed certain men to fulfill a certain role in the church and not the ladies. But he's also explaining what the role of the ladies and most of the men is in the church. In fact, when you look at creation and marriage and redemption, when a man leads and in leading submits to Christ, loves like Christ and admits his need of his sister or wife in his life a wonderful display of love and unity and cooperation will always begin to appear. Always. Which should now help us understand verse 15, all right? Now look at verse 15. Yet she, now notice this, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they, plural, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now there are two main interpretations of this, and then I'm going to add a twist, all right? one of the main ones is that somehow Paul is saying that a woman is saved by giving birth. Like really trying to take... Now, of course, think about that. If that's true, then that means there's work salvation. So that if a woman gives birth, she can be saved. Remember what I said, the principle of harmony? Well, we know the Bible can't contradict itself. The Bible says in Ephesians that you can't do any good works to be saved. So we know it can't mean that. Plus, we know that not all women have children. So it can't be that. And we know that in the Bible, some women died during childbirth. So in this case, then this passage is not true. So now God's a liar. So that cannot be it. The more popular one in evangelical circles is the idea taken from Genesis 3.15, that because uh, Eve fell and that that God would now increase the pain of her childbearing and all, all that kind of stuff, that because it was Jesus Christ would come through a woman, through Mary, that that is the salvation of the world and that that's what Paul is talking about, that because Jesus comes through a woman, that therefore she'll be saved through childbearing. Well, that's a bit of an ambiguous way to say that in light of what he's talking about. He's talking about the church. If you really want to understand this, go over a couple of pages if you're in 1 Timothy, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and look with me at verse 16. You see, in chapter 3, Paul starts to lay out the qualifications for elders for the men. Then he lays out the qualifications for deacons, and I'm going to get myself in trouble again because here I would say, and ladies, all right? So buckle up for that. That's previews of coming attractions, all right? But when he gets to chapter 4, and he's still walking through this, he says in verse 16 to, Paul, to Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. In other words, Timothy, keep a close You do this. Now notice this. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's the same construction as 2.15. Really what Paul is saying is, listen, sisters, daughters of God, when you embrace your role, when you embrace your purpose, your destiny, what God has called you to be, it will have a redemptive effect on everybody around you because it displays the gospel. When, when Timothy lives up to his calling, when he embraces his purpose and he does these things, it will have a redemptive effect on those around him. So imagine men and women doing what they're supposed to and what kind of an effect that would have on us and a city. That's what he's calling you to. It's really not that complicated. He's saying, ladies, when you embrace your daughtership of God, God will bless that by saving people because of you. I think that is there any higher privilege to know that God would use you just in your femininity to save for himself a people? I think that's amazing. Men, God will use you and your masculinity to save people. Now, let's be honest. (laughs) Number two, why do we all struggle with this? Because we'd all be lying if we didn't say we didn't struggle with this. We do, right? It's one thing to read these verses. It's one thing for me to stand up here and give you what many of you could accuse me of as my opinion on what they say and mean. But the reality is we've already, all of us in this room, have made some sort of decision about what these verses mean and whether or not we were going to live by them or what they say and we're going to make them say what we want them to say. Now, to understand a little more clearly what Paul writes about in this is why we all struggle with it. See, we need to look no further. Now I want you to go back to Genesis 3. I'll go up right back to the front of your Bible and go in a couple of pages. And if you've got a study Bible, I love the heading of chapter 3. It just says, The Fall. All right? Now, I want you to realize, and I said this last week as I close, and I want to make sure everybody realizes this this week. Submission was put in place by God before sin entered the world. Okay? When God institutes marriage, when God creates Adam and Eve, when he creates Adam, he calls him Adam. All right? He calls him Adam. He said, out of the dust of the ground, I formed Adam, and I breathed life into him, and he'll be called Adam, which means the first of things. He is the beginning. All right? Then Adam names Eve. And he says, because she's been taken from my side. And God instituted submission because he instituted marriage, which is, by the way, one of the reasons why in a church we have to be honest about divorce and remarriage. I'm really struggling with churches that want to try and enforce the perfection of marriage that came before sin into the world on a group of sinners after sin came into the world. That's why I've preached a message on that, why, why, God, why God wants, but, what, what God doesn't want but allows for. Okay, because marriage, the perfection of marriage was instituted before sin. We need to realize that. Submission was put in place before sin. But let's be honest. We struggle with this because of sin. Notice, all right? So they fall, and notice what God God does here. All right, so he comes to the woman. In verse 16, to Eve, God says this. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now notice, Your desire shall be for your husband. Now, if you write in your Bible again, that is not a nice word. That is not a good word. That's not God saying, oh, honey, you're going to long for Adam. That's not what he means. If you want to know what he means, look over another chapter in the chapter four with Cain and Abel. After Cain murders his brother Abel and buries him and God comes to him and says, where's your brother? And, And remember, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And notice he says, the blood of Abel calls out, and he says, "Oh Cain, sin has desired you. It's the same Hebrew word that God uses there when he says, you will desire your for husband. What that means is control. Now, Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth, and from now on, you will seek to control your husband. And in other words, that curse has been passed on, that women will want to control men, manipulate men. Guys, I don't have to prove that. Look at a culture. Now, notice what else he says. He says, and he shall rule over you. Again, if you write in your Bible, that is not a nice word. That's not God saying, oh, Eve, you're going to be manipulative and controlling, but Adam, he's going to get it. No, in fact, he says, instead of lovingly leading you, sacrificially caring for you, cherishing you and providing, he will now seek to use his manliness to lord over you. That's an effect of the curse. He will rule over you. And we struggle with this because we've all seen and experienced abuses, haven't we? We've seen men just lord over women with their physical presence or the the cutting of their words or just simply abusing them physically but have we not also seen women control and seek to control men through the use of their words or their bodies we've seen that it's been a struggle since this was laid out in the curse and we struggle because we all want to be in control we all want to be in control because why did Eve fall? What did Satan say to her? If you eat this, you'll be like God. Now, she could have said, I'm already like God. But he said, no, no, you'll know the difference between good and evil. Basically, what don't miss what he's actually saying. He's telling Eve, you get to decide. And have men and women not been doing that through all of history? And is there ever a more prevalent time than in our culture? We have the battles of sexuality and homosexuality and transgenderism. And then to this week it all became about your race. Now the world is trying to figure out if I was born white but I want to be black. And this is the confusion of our world. And this is what happens. So why do we struggle with it? Because of sin. Because we've experienced abuses. Because we want to be in control. And if we will admit... That our flesh, as both men and women, is tainted by sin. That our culture is always wanting to free define right and wrong, always wanting to assume the role of God in our destiny. If we will admit that Satan's ultimate goal is the destruction of God's creation, then we have a much easier time submitting to God's design and trusting Him even when it seems awkward at first, and it will. You see, the, the idea of complementarianism, the idea that men and women in the church work together to fulfill their roles, is, listen, it's not a one-size-fits-all, because it's as varied as there are men and women. It depends upon us seeking God and His Word, renewing our minds constantly, depending on His Spirit, and practicing walking this in faith. But, as I bring the train to the station, number three, what happens when we trust God with it? What happens when we trust God with it? And here, believe it or not, is now where I'm going to get really excited. All right? Imagine what a church looks like where the men and women of it are committed to trusting, obeying, and pursuing God and His plan and ways for His people. What would that look like to a watching world? I love history. I love history. I'm fascinated by great men and women whom God has used, and they're able to put words together, and they can move people to emotion and actions. And one of my favorite figures of history is Martin Luther King Jr. I have read and listened to him give that uh, I am free, the free at last speech. I've listened to him do that. I've listened to him preach in churches. I just love listening to him. He had a way with words. Words would come out, and they were poetry. His I am of dream speech has been remembered and quoted for decades and will likely be for decades to come. But what should we be dreaming about as a church? What if I or we have a dream where women are celebrated and loved like no other place in society in the church? Where there is safety and security for every woman of the church to not only embrace her femininity but to display Christ with her gifts and talents physically and emotionally and intellectually and most of all spiritually. Where we are, have moved away from gender competition to biblical cooperation. I dream of a church where our ladies are free from the tyranny of male dominance and are cared for and led and protected by male servant leadership where our sisters in Christ know they are needed and wanted and cherished in the working out of the gospel and the health of the church. I dream of a church where our ladies don't view submission and God's design for His church as a burden to be carried, but a privileged calling to be delighted in. I dream of a church where men, all men, understand their calling to die to self and to be men of God, men of the word, and men of prayer, where we stop making excuses for our personalities and our laziness, and we step forward before God in front of our families and lead. But in that leadership, we understand that our sisters in Christ, or our wife, is not our enemy to be silenced, but our fellow heir in the gospel to be brought into our lives. Where men know how to ask for help, and seek counsel and and advice and insights from God's word from the ladies in their lives. But where our ladies know that once all has been shared and said that they can trust the brother in their lives to walk out to God and lead. And here is how we'll know if we figured this out. If you have a bulletin, look at your food for thought. At the very last line of your food for thought, Paul David Tripp says this, if you find more joy in serving God than yourself, you know that grace has entered your door because only grace has the power to rescue you from you. Only grace has the power to rescue you from you. So following God's teaching in 1 Timothy two eleven to 15 is not some burden to bear as if you give up and give in and try to hang on until you get to the end. No, I would challenge you to read Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, it's 176 verses of a psalmist saying, the word of the Lord is my pleasure, it is my joy, it is my safety, it's my refuge to run to. God's words are not burdensome when you trust Him. Tim Keller writes, Genesis 1, you see pairs of different but complementary things working together. Think about it. Heaven and earth, sea and land, even God and humanity. It is part of the brilliance of God's creation that diverse, unlike things, are made to unite and create dynamic wholes which generate more and more life and beauty through their relationships. N.T. Wright says this, creation and the uniting of male and female at the end of Genesis 2 is the climax of God's creation. That means that male and female have unique non-interchangeable glories they each see and do things that the other cannot do and so calvary what happens when we trust god with this real freedom is found real freedom is found because now as martin luther came free at last free at last thank god almighty i'm free at last you don't have to run from your gender you don't have to pretend about your struggles you can run to god the gospel becomes life-giving not just life-changing In other words, it just doesn't change the way you live. You're actually energized by following God. The church has real power. We have something real to pursue, and God is truly imitated and glorified. And as you leave here this morning, I want you to realize Charles Spurgeon said it best. He said, Our faith is a person, it's Jesus Christ. He would write and later say our creed, our body of divinity, our whole theology is summed up in the person of Christ Jesus. And so to every one of you that are here this morning, do you see how God's plan is just not what he wants for us, but what's best for us? You don't have to settle when you come to Jesus. God's plan will not just protect you. It will rescue you and transform you and forgive you. You see, look, just as Jesus was submissive, so we must all be submissive. Make no mistake about it. It's submissive to admit that we are in need of forgiveness, that we need love and mercy, that we cannot make it on our own, that we cannot be good enough, we cannot be strong enough. It's submission to own the fact that we're not only needy, but we're deserving of hell. No matter how good you are or how bad you are, you need Jesus. But freedom is found, again, in your food for thought. When you realize that Jesus came to set you free from yourself. When you submit, you are free. That's the deception of sin and worshiping yourself. You never have real freedom. When you live for yourself, you always live in fear and anxiety with guilt and shame. And for some, it's the form of denial and being busy. And for others, it's quietly and slowly dying each and every day. But Jesus will free you. And for my sisters... Will you embrace God's plan for your life and allow him to overwhelm you with his grace, mercy, love, and empowerment? Listen to me. It's not girl power. It's God's power. The culture's wrong. Girl power will never satisfy. God's power will. Ladies, you are called to learn and called to pray and called to serve and called to contribute, called to be women, women of God, children of the king, joint heirs with Christ, filled with God's spirit. Ladies, you're called to exercise your giftness towards your families, your husband, your children, each other in the body of Christ. But you're called to exemplify Christ in letting your father or your husband or your elders represent you to Christ in your life or your marriage or in the church. You're called to pray for your elders and support them and listen to them, but also study Scripture, scripture to know that they are being true to God and His Word and to help them in any way you can, quite literally, to complement Your brothers in Christ, as an act of love and unity and God's glory. And to the men, will you, men, step up, step out, and step large to more than just embrace God's plan for your life, but embrace and support God's plan for the ladies of our church? Will we be a church that celebrates womanhood? And I'm not talking about just marriage and childbearing and homemaking. And those are wonderful aspects of the diamond that is a woman. But what about men that we celebrate women's intelligence and giftedness and contribution and the absolute need to have our sisters join us in displaying the best, most complete picture of Christ and the gospel to this city. In the end of the day, will we surrender all? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for just the energy to get through this. Lord, I thank you for what, at least to my eyes, was the perceived patience of a group of people to listen to a guy be really excited about you. And I pray, Father, that my enthusiasm will not be mistaken for some sort of tactic to be intimidating or to convince people of my position. Lord, the truth is I just love you so much. And I love your word and I love your patience. I love the way you have built us as men and women. The way you've redeemed us and the way when we submit to you, it's just amazing. And I pray for any man or woman here that doesn't know you, that they won't leave here until they do. I pray for husbands and wives, for men or women that are struggling with their role Maybe they have questions about what it means to be a godly woman, a a daughter of God, a godly man, a son of God. Lord, don't let people be afraid. Oh God, help us by your Spirit's power to embrace this and not run from it. So Lord, may indeed we surrender all to you, not just as a song, but as the anthem of our soul. In Jesus' name, and all God's people stand. Stand with us and let's sing that old hymn.